What's going on, Hotep to the family? Welcome back to another episode of My Unapologetic Perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network, where we give our point of view on controversial topics from experience, history, knowledge as African-Americans. Um, I'm here with my co-host again, Jerome Battle. How are you, sir? I'm fine, sir. Hey, uh, another day to give out information, and I'm excited. I am excited. I am excited about the topic that we have today. Uh, for first and foremost, thank everybody who's been tuning in. I believe the last episode probably is our most high viewed episode. That's right. Um, and probably the episode that we got the most feedback from. Uh, and we really do appreciate everybody that called, text, to see us in person and talk about the work that we've been doing, um, spreading information. Um, again, we're not here to be right. We're here to cause you to think from our perspective. Um, we want everybody to begin to listen to these episodes and relay information from the last episodes. And you can begin That's to start right. to put the pieces together on why a lot of African-Americans think that the way that they think um, as we go back and look at American history. Uh, for everybody that's tuning in, I know we may it may seem that we gained a victory last week with the conviction of Derek Chauvin. But the work is not done yet. You know, there is a few things in there that we still have to look at. We have to look at what the sentencing is going to be. We have to look at what the appeal process is going to be. There's a lot of things to look at. And um, we still have to stay very, very close to the situation because there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be done, even with this particular case. <coughs> As I know, we still uh, are being exposed to more shootings, more deaths, more cases, more names to add to our list. Um but we still have to continue to attack uh, a place where we already have them, you know, on the ropes. That's right. Um, and speaking of Derek Chauvin, just because of this case and and the conviction, they're now looking into a incident that happened with them in 2017. Yes, yes. Where they're considering charging him for an assault on a, a black teenager. Mm -hmm. So, again, this is. This is not something that we are just creating out of osmosis. This is something that has been happening for years. This is something that's been happening for generations after generations. As we talked about our ancestors last week, this is some of the things that they went through. And we're going to continue to talk about our ancestors um, on this episode. Um, that's right. A lot of people have uh, been giving us a lot of feedback. And this topic was actually given to us by someone to say, hey, you guys should talk about this. Absolutely. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, they're absolutely right, because this is a good starting point yes. for people who ask, you know, where do I start when it comes to history? That's right. Well, you can start anywhere, but this is a good starting point because it covers so much and it covers so much time um, as we look through history. So today we're going to be talking about the, the civil rights. And most people, when they think of the civil rights, they think about the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. That's right. So you're talking about, when you say civil rights, people think the first person you think about Martin is Dr. King, King Rosa Parks. Um, you think about all of the, the civil rights that happened in the 50s and the 60s, and rightfully so, because they, they did a lot. They, they created a lot of change, and they, they endured a lot. But when we think about the civil rights movement, it goes back way further than the actual 50s and the 60s. You're going back... Hundreds of years before that. That's right. And um, if you go back to 1833, there was a min minority of whites joined black anti-slavery activists to form the American Anti-Slavery Society under the leadership of a guy named William Lloyd Garrison. 
and Frederick Douglass, one of my favorites. That's right. Um, and they became at the abolitionist movement. Um, and when you begin to look at what they were able to do back in the 1830s, as people were gaining their freedom, they were, they were attempting to get those civil rights um, during that period. And then you can move on into, you know, 1857, when the U.S. Supreme Court rejected African-American citizenship, citizenship claims. Um, you look at the Dred Scott decision stated that the country's founders have viewed that blacks are so inferior that they have no rights, which the white man was to bound to respect. Um, you look after the American Civil War, you have Republican leaders the, from the Union who um after they abolished slavery, of course, you had the 13th Amendment, you had the 14th Amendment, and you had the 15th Amendment. Um, then there became a guy that, that really took over what we consider the Pan-African movement by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois. That's right. Um, becoming a leader and advocate for civil rights um, for African-Americans and descendants elsewhere in the world. So 1909, you're talking about W.E.B. Du Bois. You're talking about um, Booker T. Washington. Uh, you're talking about they created the the NAACP, the boys, a guy named James Weldon Johnson, uh, Walter White, Thurgood Marshall and others, Ida B. Wells. Um, you're talking about people continue to fight the the Jim Crow system um, after uh, the Civil War. Then you can move on to 1941, a guy by the name of uh, Philip Randolph, who threatened to stage a, a march on Washington, D.C., um, with uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt to issue an executive order against employment discrimination in the wartime defense industries. Um, and then, of course, this led into what we know today as, you know, Dr. King, Rosa Parks and um, the things passed. Um, so just give me your take on that as we as we just went through a lot of the history. It's amazing that. You know, you the the folks that you just named, I have a complete different category of people that also applied and was very uh, involved in what people could consider Talk the beginning of the civil rights movement. First, let's put something in quick perspective. In 1865, you had the 13th Amendment. Mm -hmm. In 1868, you had the 14th Amendment. And in 1870, you had the 15th Amendment. Yes. So technically... The civil rights began when you you have those amendments. Yes. So so we can look at that. But let's also look at Octavius Octavius Cato, uh, 1871. He was murdered um, on Election Day, broad daylight, mm -hmm. um, going to vote. And for if you if you think about the amendments that I just mentioned, by law, he had the right to register and, and the, the right, right to, to vote. vote. Yeah. And he was murdered. Um, his murderer was never uh, prosecuted. Um, and this is a this is a great story right here. It's called the Isaac Woodard story. Uh, February 1946, a black soldier named Isaac Woodard um, was on his way home, South Carolina, just being just getting out of the army. And he used the restroom mm -hmm. and he got into a verbal altercation with uh, the bus driver about using the restroom. Mm -hmm. After he used the restroom and returned to his seat, the next stop, gang of whites pulled him off the bus and beat him. Mm -hmm. Beat him badly, um, threw him into a jail cell where some of the officers gouged his eyes and blinded him and all kinds of things. Um, nobody was prosecuted for that. Uh, Harry Truman, president at the time, um, passed some things to help in those situations, mm -hmm. but it, it happened. 
A lot of people think that was the start of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, another, this is another good one. 1948, um, a black voting rights activist home was bombed, um, crippled one of his children. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, not long after that, you hear about Henry T. Moore, who was murdered. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people think that those situations is what started the civil rights movement. Uh, 1951, Willie McGee was executed for raping a white a, a, a white lady um, in Mississippi, even though the evidence suggested that the charges were brought out of fear um, and that it was a consensual relationship. Mm -hmm. um, nobody prosecuted. Um, again, 1951. So those we, we're talking about all of this is way before what people consider the civil rights movement. movement yeah. Um, so even Brown uh, versus Board of Education. Education. A lot of people think that was the start of the civil rights movement. Emmett Till's 1955. Right. Um, the Little Rock Nine, 1957. Mm -hmm. um, so you have all these incidents that were taking place that could have been the start of the civil rights movement. 1965 bought what was called Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday, yeah. Um, so now keep in mind, 1965 was after, after the signing uh, of the 15th Amendment. Yeah. Uh, well, the, four, the 14th Amendment. Right. So you have these things taking place after legally we should have been able to have certain freedoms that we we didn't have mm -hmm. so you can attach the civil the beginning of the civil rights movement to any of those those situations absolutely so as we look at throughout history there were people who were already fighting their own fight for um what we consider civil rights that's right um if you look what civil rights means the right to be in the country the right to vote the right to not be discriminated against. These are the rights that they were fighting for. So from the from enslavement to the abolitionists to moving forward to free men, moving forward to um, desegregation, you're seeing African-Americans constantly fight. And Malcolm X has a quote when we consider Malcolm X a civil rights leader as well, even though his fight was on human rights. That's right. Um, but he constantly said that there are enough laws on the law books to where you shouldn't need any more laws. That's right. So would you, when you look at what African-Americans um, were fighting for when it came to civil rights, technically they shouldn't have had to fight for. That's because right. if the Emancipation Proclamation was correct in, in its statements, they would have already been granted citizenship to the point where they were able to do all of these things without being portrayed or disrespected in a way to say you're not equal to, That's right. to, to white people. So just think about this. This is some of the civil rights that was passed, um, not even including the um, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. The Civil Rights Act of 1866, the Civil Rights Act of 1870, which was also called the KKK Act, which prohibited discrimination in voter registration on the basis of race, color, and previous condition of servitude. Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1871, or the second KKK Act, placed all elections in both the North and South under federal control because by being under state control, a lot of the southern states were able to do what they wanted to do and, and manipulate people the way they want them manipulated. Civil Rights Act of 1875, bar discrimination in public accommodations and on public conveniences on land and water, prohibited exclusion of African Americans from jury duty. Again, go back to some of the previous episodes and you can hear about that. Civil Rights Act of 1970, I mean, of 1960, I'm sorry. Civil Rights Act of 1964, 
Civil Rights Act of 1968 for fair housing. Civil Rights Act of 1991 of job discrimination. Now, you just look at all of those Civil <laughs> Rights Act that is passed. If America was true to itself and true to equality the way some people say it is, why is it necessary for every four, every six, every eight, every 10 years to still pass Civil Rights Act? That's right. And there are still people who are fighting for more Civil Rights Act when it comes to the LGBT community, African-Americans still. That's there are right. still people who are still feel like they're being discriminated against because America is foundations was not meant for people to change. That's right. So when we look at the history of how the civil rights movement came to be, um, we still see a lot of those problems today. Um, so what we're going to look at is what is the civil rights movement and what were some key moments in the civil rights movement? So the civil rights movement, of course, was fighting for their their right to vote, the right to not be discriminated against, the right to be a citizen, the right to be considered, the right to walk down the street and not be arrested for what you look like, the right to not be killed for what you look like, the right for equality. You're talking about a lot of things that, we're still having conversations about today. Yeah, they were actually fighting for the right to practice their right to vote. Right. right. You know, we already had the right to vote. Right. They just wouldn't allow us to practice it. The the law was on the side of the black voter. Right. Um, but there was nobody to enforce it. Right. Um, some key events. Um, I'm going to just throw a few out there for the people who don't know about it, especially in Virginia. For example, uh, 1951, there was a student that walked out of a Virginia high school led by Barbara Johns, age 16, on the efforts of uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision. There was a um, female in Middlesex, Virginia um, in 1944 named Irene Morgan, who under state law imposing racial segregation in public facilities and transportation, she was traveling on an interstate bus. And refused to give up her seat in the white section. Um, so for the people who think that Rosa Parks was the first to do it, there were many other people who refused to give up their seat. Um, not to downplay what Rosa Parks did, but um, we've seen this way before. Um, That's right. For, for the civil rights movement that we know today. Um, there was a silent protest in 1917 in Manhattan where people marched in the streets um, of Manhattan. Um the first one I want to look at that we know about that you were taught in school, and I want to talk about why is, why it was important, is the Montgomery bus boycott of 1955. Um, in 1955, the NAACP activist Rosa Parks that we know of today refused to give up her seat on the bus, which sparked them to uh, the NAACP to start boycotting the buses. And a reason why this was important is because of the way it affected the economic system in the That's South. Right. Remember, if you listen to this podcast, we continue to talk about the way that you hurt America is in this pocket. That's right. So whenever black people decided to not ride the bus, it messed up the system because people lost their jobs because they were not able to pick up African-Americans and take them to work. A lot of workplaces were losing money because the black people can get it, get there all the time because they were walking to work. That's right. So when you talk about not giving their money for public transportation and deciding, you know what, we're going to just walk and we're going to endure. That was huge on the economic system because we know that black people spend the most money in the world. That's right. We're, we're one of the top races that spends money. And with public transportation, we were not giving them that money. 
and change the economic system. And there were black people who were who had their own buses, who That's had right. their own means of transportation. So instead of paying the the racist buses, you started paying black people to take you to work. And it was a change in the economic That's right. system. Also, it was the beginning of carpooling. Yeah. And so this this was the start of carpooling. And as you said, it it hurt the United States in the pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we see today some of the impacts of these protests where obviously it's hurting companies in the pocket. Yeah. And when you start hurting them in the pocket, the first thing you got to do is you got to sit down and try to figure out how we can fix this. Right. So obviously the minute that the boycott started happening, you had people in legislation start saying, okay, what do we need to do to fix this? Right. We have to sit down at the table and keep in mind something we keep talking about in this podcast is one of the reasons some people feel that Martin Luther King was assassinated is because he was having these sit down meetings, which means he was getting stuff done. Right. And the only way to get things done is you have to change the law or force those that are supposed to be enforcing it to enforce it, mm-hmm. which is what he did, and which is what the civil rights movement did. Right. And the boycott lasted 381 days. Think about how much money they lost over a course of a year and some change. over a year and some change. And why they decided to desegregate the bus is because the economic system began to change. Um, That's right. In America. Um, another case that was big were four black students um, in North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, decided to stage a sit in at a drugstore lunch counter mm-hmm. uh, reserved for whites. And in the wake of the Greensboro sit in, thousands of students at at least 60 communities, mostly in the upper uh, urbanized South, joined the sit in campaign during the winter and the spring of the 1960s. And this is important because, number one, I got to talk about these are students. Yeah, and 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 also to add to that, a sit-in happened in the 60s during the same time that it happened at Woolworths in Greensboro, right in Lynchburg, Virginia. Lynchburg, Virginia, That's absolutely. Right. And these were students. Um, I, I can't stress that enough because... One of the things that we've seen in the African-American community during these tragic deaths is a lot of the older people who may have participated in some of these marches and and things or may have their families have and they know the the stories closer up. They still like to control their marches and protests to say we have to do it this way. That's right. But I believe we have to be mindful the same way we talked about last week with respecting our elders but there are some old fools out here is the older folks have to understand that it was the younger people who were doing these a lot of the marchings and a lot of the sit-ins in the south so we have to be aware of what the teenagers are saying today what what is their philosophy on things that's right because we know from history that it doesn't take an older person to create change. Now you can guide them in direction and whatever the case may be, but these were college students who decided to go in and sit in. And let me be honest, a lot of the people of the NAACP did not like this fact. They didn't think this was a good idea. They thought it was provoking people. So a lot of the sit-ins were not looked at by the elders as a good idea. Because right. they felt that they would be beaten and jailed and, and, and killed. And the student said, so what? That's right. 
And you have to look at it from both perspectives, because obviously with the younger generation, not just the black younger generation, but also the white generation, yeah. because one of the things that we've learned and that if you watch these podcasts, you will see is that the older generation typically taught the younger generation how to be racist. Yeah. So in order to change that, you have to get the younger generation involved in the change. So you have to be the change that you want to see. Right. And obviously it wasn't just black uh, students that were leading these protests, but also white students because they wanted to see change as well. So you have the old fools on the black side leading the marches and saying it has mm -hmm. to be done this way. But you also had the white fools, the racist yeah. police officers and judges and business owners and sheriffs that you also wanted to change. You're not going to change their way of thinking. Right. You're not going to change their way of living. What you can do, though, is change the next generation's way of thinking. Right. And that was why the young the young input, the young marches, the young sit ins were very important to the civil rights movement. Right. Because you can have passion and you can have wisdom. That's right. So the elders job is to bring the wisdom to the passionate younger people. That's right. So when so even if you don't agree, my thing is uh I was asked to speak at the um George Floyd uh march or protest or whatever you case you want to call it. And my thing that I said is I don't want to do this again. Not because I don't think I'm a great speaker or because but I'm I'm 30 years old. And I'm getting to the point where I'm looked at as the OG or the elder. I want to hear from the younger people because you're the ones that got out to push this envelope further. That's you're right. the ones with the passion for it. I'm, I know how to live with it. You don't want to live. We don't want you to live with it. Absolutely. I've learned how to deal with racist people and, and ignore it. But you have to see this in your face for the next 20, 30 years um, on a different level. So. What is what do you guys think the strategy is? Well, you know, every every time you guys, you and Shaquan would come to me and go, Dad, we want you to do this. Or can you speak on this? Can you talk about this? I always say that, you know, you probably really want to get somebody from the younger generation. Right. And as 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 an adult male, you have a small window of opportunity where you where you can be influential. Right. And as that window closes, you have to hope that there's somebody left to come pick it up mm -hmm. and and open that window again. Um, like Travis has done, you mm -hmm. know, and, and like you guys have done. Um, now you got to start looking for the next generation of yeah. people that's going to come through and continue. The one thing that we always talk about is and, and, and we have to bring this up since we're talking about the civil rights movement is that when Martin Luther King was assassinated, mm -hmm. what happened? Who was the next right, prominent leader right, right. that stepped up? None that you can think of. We right. can name people that were influential after his death, mm -hmm. but who actually stepped into that role after he was assassinated? Right. Nobody. After Mega Everest was assassinated, who stepped that, into that role? In Mississippi, no, nobody. nobody. Right. After Malcolm X was assassinated, who, who stepped, stepped into that role? Right. Nobody. Right. So obviously, we have to start grooming the next Martin Luther King, mm -hmm. the next Malcolm X, the next Mega Evers, because mm -hmm. we haven't seen that since the 60s. Yeah. So, you know, that's over 50 years ago right. that we have not had a prominent leader um, to take the place of those people who were assassinated. Right. Because we have to understand that great leaders create new leaders. That's right. So for me, even at age 30, some people say that's young. Some people say that's old, whatever the case may be. Well, I'm in the middle. That's right. All right. So my goal is not to go out in March and protest. 
No disrespect to the younger generation with the passion that wants to do it. Go out and do it. Make your face the scene. Make your voices heard. Do that. That's right. I'm not going to be there. That's the right. reason why? Because I'm here. So my job as the OG or the elder now is to give out information and allow the younger generation to do the legwork. Absolutely. You know, one of my favorite movies now is Creed. It's kind of corny, but, you know, the concept, I love it. Yeah. So Rocky was a fighter. Mm -hmm. And as he got older, uh, a guy that he he fought, son, comes to him and wants him to train him. Mm -hmm. So now you have the fighter who knew how to fight, who fought and was good at it. Now he's going to train somebody else because that person has the passion to fight but not necessarily the wisdom. Right. So I'm going to give you, Rocky's going to give you what you need to be able to get in the ring and and use your passion to right. fight. So you got to have that guidance. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we have to be. We, I'll, I'll be, actually I'll be 52 tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And at 52 years old, my job was to take your passion and try to help you mm-hmm. push it along to where you could be influential. Right. Now you have to do the same thing with someone else or others. Each one teach one. We talk mm-hmm. about that all the time. Mm-hmm. That is a real statement. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is being able to find people, one that are committed, that understand. And as you said in podcast, number one, sincere, it's sincere, sincere. So in order to do that, you have to understand history. You mm-hmm. have to understand the chronology of what yes. we're talking about yeah. here and how it relates to you today so that you can go out and do those things. Absolutely. And for the older folks, we know the younger generation is going to do whatever. This is the thing we say, you know, the, the younger generation don't know nothing, but you have to understand Every generation rebels against this former generation That's because right. time changes and they let you know that it's not the way it was. It's not the way it was 20 years ago. Absolutely. You know, things have changed so drastically that we have to understand what is it that the younger people are trying to say. And I, for one, have I, I, I try to listen. I don't agree all the time. But I'm still going to show you that I'm here to support you. And during one of the, the, the speakers at the protest, I'm not going to name any names, but he said all lives matter. And his, in his mind, he was right. But he didn't understand whose st- whose toes he stepped on. That's right. Because of the, the African-Americans who say black lives matter. Not that black lives is more important, but it is important as everybody else. You just stepped on their toes because you have yet to have a conversation with them. On what do they mean by that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm black lives matter. All lives matter, but all lives aren't being tested. Yeah. All lives aren't being taken like black lives. Right. So when we say black lives matter, we're not saying that black lives matter more than any other life. We're Mm -hmm. not saying that. We're saying no other life is being treated like black lives. Yeah. So and we we want that to change. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're that's what we're striving for. And when we when we talk about the impact that people can have in the community. And this is this is the thing that I urge everybody to do. Be honest. Mm-hmm. Be honest about what's really happening. And I know you're going to have a lot of people going to say, as we said on this podcast before, is it does it happen as much as it used to? I don't think so. Why? Because it doesn't happen to you. Right. Why? Because you don't experience it. Right. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. We are seeing every day how this continues to happen. Right. We just talked about since the Derek Chauvin's conviction, there's been over 20 20 blacks being murdered by police officers Mm -hmm. over 20 just since his conviction Two happened the same day. Mm -hmm. So we're urging you to really understand that this is not something that only happened 
in the 1800s, the early 1900s, in the 1950s, the 1960s, yesterday. It's happening today. Exactly. And a guy asked me on Facebook, well, I'm going to say this, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. Um, I was asked on Facebook, what would be good enough? They were talking about the conviction of, of Derek Chauvin, and I was still arguing about it. And he said, what is it going to be good enough? I said, the fact that you have to ask me that question is a problem. That's what right. do you mean, what is going to be good enough? I'm a person, you can't sell me on progress. That's right. You can't give me a crumb and think it's a whole meal. I'm not that person because I look back at the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, and they thought they were having progress and we're still talking about the same thing in 2021. Absolutely. I'm not there. I'm not with, I'm not with progress. I'm with complete change. And if you can't completely change over something that you consider to be equal and justice for all that you had us say for years in school, Equal That's justice right. for all, and you telling me we're getting to the point of there, we're we're halfway there. It's not good enough for me. Look what had to happen in order for them to even charge him. Exactly. Without the protests, <laughs> without the backlash, without social media, mm -hmm. without CNN, would this even happen? Exactly. And we're gonna take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. We're gonna jump right back into what we were talking about. Um, the the next group that comes up in 1961. It's called the, the Freedom Riders. Um, and they were a group called CORE, which mostly came from the North um, or Southern states that weren't really in the Deep South. And one of the things that they did, they wanted to get on a bus and go down and just start sitting in and, you know, uh, whites only places um, and really start to see that, hey, this is our right to do so. Um, and they were met with a lot of resistance. I'm not going to go too much into it right now because there is a story I want to tell about about them, about a specific person later on. But what I do know is we, we were just recently talking about um, Dr. King thought this was a bad idea. Yeah, um, yes, sir. He, he, he did not like this idea. He thought it was provoking people in the, in the deep south. And it was, but they wanted to to capture the, the moment. They wanted to capture the, the brutality. And they had every... They, they they knew what was going to happen when they got down there, but they knew that if the news caught it, they knew if the, if if other people watched and seen this, that they would be sympathetic and and get on their side about their fight on um, discrimination in the South. Um, in 1963, you had the Birmingham campaign. The goal of the Birmingham campaign was to end discriminatory economic policies in the Alabama city against African-American residents. They faced deep financial disparities and violent <coughs> reprisal when addressing racial issues. Uh, the campaign included a boycott of certain businesses that hired whites only or maintain segregated restrooms. <coughs> Protesters used nonviolent tactics such as marches and sit-ins with the goal of getting arrested so that the city jail would become crowded. Police use dogs, high-pressure water hoses against protesters. Um, as you can see um, in the videos where they were spraying with water hoses and, and all of those different things. And they actually came to an agreement after that happened. But the agreement didn't last long after we've seen um, the bombing of, the, of the, the church in Alabama with the, with the girls in it, um, the kids in it. Um, right. So it, it wasn't a long, peaceful type of thing. Um, as we move forward, of course, you had the March on Washington. Um, this was the largest political rally for human rights ever in the United States, estimated over 200,000 to 300,000 participants. 
uh, participated and conveyed on the mall on the mall of Washington D.C. on August. 28, 1963, to protest for jobs and freedom for African Americans. King delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech. Um, and then in 1965, as you referred to earlier, which was Bloody Sunday, which was led by our late great John Lewis, right. um, where they were uh, marching in Selma, Virginia. I mean, Selma, um, Alabama, I'm sorry. Um, and they were met with violence. And the key thing, they were met with violence by state troopers. Again, this goes back to the last episodes we were talking about with trust between African-Americans and police is because we're talking about 1965 here where the state troopers participated in beating marches on something they had a right to do. Um, So as we look at that, um, African-Americans accounted for half the population in Selma, but only 2% of the votes. Um, a month before this happened, before they marched in, um, before they marched in Selma um, in a nearby town called Marion on February 18th, 1965, um, a state trooper clubbed protesters and fatally shot 26 year old Jimmy Lee Jackson, an African-American demonstrator trying to protect his mother who was being struck by police. So this was called Bloody Sunday in which um, you could watch the movie Selma. Uh, you can go back and look at how. Uh, they were treated by doing these marches um, in the South. And, and once again, you could see the pattern. But we, we also talk about how the sins uh, uh, of our fathers also fall upon us. So things that happen to our forefathers, things that happen to our ancestors, how those things are deeply rooted in us. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go back to... Um, Late 1918, early 1919 was the start of what's considered the Red Summer, Mm -hmm. which is a period where gangs of whites violently attacked blacks in black neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. just went into the neighborhood and violently attacked them, uh, murdered them, robbed them, did whatever they wanted to them. And this happened in multiple cities um, in multiple states across the United States. Mm -hmm. So this was happening everywhere. Um, so you you take those things and how we were treated. Um, and, and a lot of this happened because we stood up. Something happened and we stood up and said no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in these situations, it, it obviously carries over to what we saw in the 60s, even in 1946, when a dispute happened um, at a store where you had uh, James Stevenson who had just came home from from the Navy, him and his mom went into a store and they got into a argument. The mother got into an argument with the clerk over a radio Mm -hmm. and the clerk slapped James Stevenson's mother. And, you know, of course, James Stevenson went to work. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously when the cops came, they arrested James Stevenson and his mom. Of course they did. And uh, when blacks found out what was going on, they came together and um, marched on downtown mm-hmm. and had a standoff with the police. And obviously, we know how that would end in any situation. Um, a, a nonviolent protest turned violent by the police. Mm-hmm. And that didn't end well for the black protesters. Mm-hmm. But you can see how these early stages of these protests and what blacks endured trying to stand up for their civil rights and fair treatment carried over into the 60s yeah so um when we look at 1965 um the chicago freedom movement 
um, which was, you know, to a protest to desegregate housing in Chicago um, for fair housing in, in, in Chicago as well. Uh, one of the things that Dr. King realized was the South ain't the only place that's racist. That's right. Um, when he went to Chicago, he actually called Chicago probably the worst city he's ever been in when it came to racism. Right. Um, he was hitting the head with the with the brick while in Chicago and he realized that the Midwest um Places like Massachusetts, uh, places like New England, um, all of these places, um, when you look at certain places in the north, was just as racist as it was in the deep south. Absolutely. Um, so that's one of the things that they read. But King did lead a march through Chicago, um, the Chicago Freedom Movement through 1967, which credited with inspiring the Fair Housing Act passed by Congress in 1969 to give us um, fair housing and not be discriminated against. Uh, you, then you're talking about 1968, which is the poor people's campaign. The goal of the poor people's campaign was to gain more economic and human rights for poor Americans from all backgrounds. Um, a multicultural movement, the campaign included Asian Americans, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricans, Native <coughs> Americans, and whites, along with African Americans. A march on Washington was planned on April 22nd, 1968, when King was assassinated on April 4th. Um, not to go into depth with this, because we are going to do this on an episode where we talk about King's philosophy again. As you heard the last episodes before, we always talk about King's philosophy began to change before he died. That's right. The poor people's campaign was going right back to what we talked about with the Montgomery bus boycott, which was talking about the economic system more than just racial social status. That's right. Um, and getting other people involved. As we see, he was starting coalitions. Before we talked about like the Black Panther Party did it before, you know, um, before other groups started to incorporate other minorities into their decision making. Um, and a lot of African-Americans did not like the poor people's campaign. They thought it was a bad idea to attack America's money rather than just fight for race. But they started to realize that the only way to change race is by changing the economic system. You actually had a lot of people who disagree with, for example, any of the marches on Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. um, even even the 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 monumental one when uh, Dr. King did his I Have a Dream speech mm -hmm. is that obviously you had hotels that were owned and, uh, and mostly employed uh, white American mm -hmm. who benefited from all those folks coming to Washington, D.C. Right. And obviously it, it became more about the economical advancement than it did about the political agenda, um, where you had these companies that were these businesses that was making a lot of money off of this this black agenda. Yeah. And a lot of people thought that wasn't the best the best approach as well. Right. Because if you look at uh, the million man marches, you look at all of these marches and you go on. You know, 200, 300,000 African-Americans going in and they're they're paying for hotel rooms. You know, they're eating at restaurants. You know, they're paying the travel fees. They're getting on airplanes. That's right. None you of look, that's owned by black. Yeah. Guys. You look at all of the money that is being funneled through just meeting in D.C. Imagine if all of those millions of people was to go into a black owned businesses and spend their money. That would change the economic system um, totally in America by giving African-Americans um, more money, more jobs, and be able to help their own communities That's by right. uh, funneling that money through the system. Um, so for the people who are listening, and again, we're going to go back to that question that we're honestly asking. We're going to answer this question every podcast now. 
the census has been asked is why is it important for me today? Why is the civil rights important for me today? And for me, it's because our ancestors stamped their right to this country. Whenever they decided to stay here in America and build in America, they decided we have a right to this country as anybody else, because we built it. We shaped it. It's built on our backs. It's built with our hands. We have a right here as anybody else. That's why they were fighting for civil rights, because they felt like we have more right than most people to be here because we built it and everything in this country. We should have a right to. Um, And we owe them that. We We owe owe them because of the enslavement. We owe them from what they built with their hands. We owe them for what they what they endured, the strength. That would be a misrepresentation of them to pack up and leave, to build this place up and to pack up and leave and say we've done our job. No, if they built it, we want to share the wealth of what our ancestors built. Absolutely. Um, So we people want to know how it, it, it applies to them, why it's important to them is that we use that word right. And you like to put the word in front of it, fundamental, fundamentally right, that you have that fundamental right to to do certain things, to be able to do certain things. And you do. The problem is, is when the government and white America, law enforcement, the judicial system, business owners, turn that right into a privilege Mm -hmm. and tell you that you don't have the right. It's a privilege Mm -hmm. because what that means is that privilege can be stripped away from you at any given moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening for those that aren't really paying attention. When you hear about them talk about voter suppression and you want to know how that affects you, you'll find out. Mm -hmm. Um, Because obviously when you go to register and then you go to vote, and they tell you you need specific things in order to be able to do so, and you don't have it. And today is the vote, and you don't have time to go and acquire those items, and you can't vote, then you'll understand what voter suppression is. Right. When obviously you have a a, a jurisdiction that is predominantly black, and a lot of those blacks are, are not able to vote because of these voter suppression laws, you'll, you'll start to understand. We would like for you to understand before that happens. But your rights are becoming privileges, which means somebody can take it away from you. Mm -hmm. And um, again, we owe them the right to be educated. When you go back and look at the plantation, they weren't allowed to read. They weren't allowed to write. And I know you might have heard this many of times, but if you listen to this podcast, you understand how in-depth our ancestors are and what they endured. So when you talk about some of your great, great, great grandparents, as we talked about on the last episode, I want you to personalize this. When you talk about the fact that they weren't able to read and write, when you talk about why African-Americans are, you know, not caught up in the educational system or educated as other people is because they had a head start. That's right. So you owe them. You owe your ancestors to at least educate yourself, number one, on your history and number two, on what we can we do to better our future for the people to come. Because that's what their thing was. Right. It was some people in their plantation who who knew they would never get off their plantation. That's right. But they was they would tell their kids, you don't have to stay here. You can run. You can get the freedom. I want you there. There were some people, if you look at the Harriet Tubman movie that you love so much, she ran and her dad was like, no, you go ahead. That's right. Her mom was like, go ahead. I'll be right here. <clears throat> she eventually went back for them. But you have to understand that it is your duty to push the envelope further. 
you may not see change in your lifetime. That's right. You may not see change in your kid's lifetime, but it's still your duty to educate yourself enough to pass it on from generation to generation, as we talked about last week. So the people that's coming behind you does not have to put up with the mess that you've done. That's right. For the people who are Christians um, and you and you and you watch the Bible, listen, don't don't leave your kids Goliaths that you should have slayed. That's right. Don't leave them obstacles that you could have that you could have defeated. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's socially, whether it's politically. I don't care what the case may be. It is your right to not sit back and just allow things to happen. As long as you on this earth, whether you're 70 years old or rather you're 14 years old and listen to this. It is your right and your duty, your responsibility to become your greatest self, not just for you. But so you can pass on the information that are the people that are going to be looking up to you. That's right. Everything affects you. It is your duty to go into that classroom to the teens that listen to this and educate yourself. Learn as much as you can. It's a reason why they marched to desegregate the schools, because a lot of the black schools was not getting the information that the other schools had. They wasn't getting the funding that the other schools had. That's right. So the integration was more than just about mixing black and white. It was the equality that came with the curriculum that was being taught. The level of education. So you have to go in and you have to listen and learn. Why? Because somebody risked their life for you to do so. That's right. There was somebody that, that was lynched for trying to do it. There was somebody that was spit on for walking into a school. You have to go back and you have to know your history to say, look, they they passed the baton to me. What am I going to do with it? Public education. Probably the only thing you're going to get for free. Yeah. The only thing you're going to get for free. Education can be free. You don't have to go to college to learn. You, you don't. Um, you can get on the Internet and learn a, a great deal. You can pick up a book. You say, hey, I don't have a library card, call, card, call me. I'll, I'll go. I'll get you one. I'll get you a card. I'll get you a book. I'll, do, I'll give you whatever you need. Education can be free. Anybody can get it. Anybody mm -hmm. can have it. All you got to do is go and get it. Get that education. Learn as much as you possibly can because we talked about this from episode one, uh, episode one all the way through. We think the biggest equalizer in the black community is education. 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 It still blows me away that even now when people listen to our podcast, the very first thing they say is, your son's very well spoken. Mm -hmm. that, to me, that's not a compliment. It's not. Because what that means is most of the black people don't sound that way. Right. That, that's, that's not a compliment. To me, that's an insult. Mm -hmm. And it's an insult on black America right. that we're still judged differently because there is a difference in how some people speak versus others. Right. And it shouldn't be because that divide is created through education. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't look at school as a form of education, it's a place to be forever. How many hours a day that I need to be there mm -hmm. instead of looking at it as a tool to get me to a better place. Right. And let, let me be very, very clear. I am educated. I have a I have a degree that says I'm educated, but I'm not just talking about education in the form of school. I'm talking about education in the form of what do you do in your own personal time? What do you not know about? That's right. What 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 can you do to expound your mind 
past some things. Because if you listen to this podcast, you know that some of this stuff was not taught in school. That's right. We, we didn't come across this information in, 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 in your everyday history class. No, we didn't. You're going to learn this information by opening up a book. Open up two books. Open up three books. That's going to lead you around four or five books. You know, you're not going to hear about W.E.B. Du Bois in school. They might mention them along with Booker T. Washington, but you're not going to learn about them. What did he do? Go back and look and research your history. You have to know your history. And I don't care what you come across in in some of your findings. It may be a change in religion. It may be a change of of socially thinking. It may be a change of your, your, your health. It may be a change of just your mental state. But it's a change in something that's going to be that's going to better you that's moving right. forward. Now, wh- whatever that may be, I don't know. But it's up to you to find out. Again, the same way we talk about there is no excuse for not knowing the law and you can still go to jail for not knowing the law. The same is is not an excuse for you not to know history to you to not know what you don't know. So I applaud a lot of the passion that is on Facebook, on social media and arguing with people about things that are going on today. But you can change a lot of people by giving them truth, then your emotions. Because when you start giving them evidence of things, of why this is occurring, not just because we don't like it, because we know we don't like it. But when you start giving them evidence on this happened in the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the more we go on through history. And you educate yourself enough to know. We're done with it. So for the older people who say, hey, the younger kids, calm down, do this. No, 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 no. Don't calm down. Let's guide that. Let's guide, guide that it. passion. That's right. let, let's look at it. Let, let me give you some history. Let me give you some, some, some wisdom that comes with that. And when I give it to you, you take all of that passion and you go change the world. That's what it's about. That's right. And I, I, I'm a person. The last election was my first time voting. Does that make because I started to learn things even at the age of 30? I'm learning. I'm constantly learning for the younger generation. I didn't vote. I didn't think it was I didn't think it was necessary. But as we talk about this podcast now and we just talked about people being killed, lynched, beaten just so they can go in and say, I voted. Uh, uh, To me, that's that's paramount. Oprah Winfrey told a story about a gentleman named Mr. Johnson that he went to vote, got up one morning and for old for you younger generation, older people used to get ready for big events, whether it was going to church or just going to town. They would get ready. So they would put on what you call your Sunday's best. Mm -hmm. And old black gentlemen would iron their shirts and they would iron their pants and they would iron their tie Mm -hmm. and they would put that stuff on and they would polish those shoes up and they would put their Sunday's best on to go vote. Uh, I I, I vividly remember seeing older gentlemen do that on on voting day. And this this guy, Mr. Johnson, got up and did all of that and walked to his polling place to vote. And when he got there, they told him, you're at the wrong place, Mr. Johnson. You need to go such and such, which was quite a few miles away. And he says, that's going to be difficult for me to get there in time to vote. They said, well, if you want to vote, that's where you got to go. And Mr. Johnson walked those miles and got there too late to vote. 
in the next election, he got up and he did the exact same thing until he was able to actually mm-hmm. cast his vote. Think about that. That's how important he wasn't concerned about whether or not his vote was going to make a difference in the election. Mm-hmm. That wasn't his concern. His concern was this was a right that people died for. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to be able to practice it. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be able to participate. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be able to give respect to those who died for him to be able to do that. You know, and for me, voting, um, I remember a conversation. We were at um, we were at one Thanksgiving. It was um, but we were at on jeans um, one day and Uncle Marty and Uncle Jeff were talking and. They were, this one was when Obama was running and they were talking about how much it meant to have Obama running and not only how much it meant for him running, but the fact that they can go in and cash their vote for a black person. That's right. And that changed my whole perspective of thinking about a way that they not because they talked about how important it was how passionate they were about the stories that, that they told about how some people weren't allowed to vote. And now we can go vote for somebody and we can vote for somebody that looks like us, that come from that from that era to where their ancestors weren't able to vote as well. So, when again, this is why you, when you talk about history, African-American, you have to personalize it That's to right. understand that there are a lot of people in your family that didn't have that chance to do so. Now, I know what. We're all woke now and our vote doesn't count and it won't change anything. I get it. I Trust me, I get it. But you still have the opportunity to matter. If we say black lives matter, it's not just from being killed. Black lives matter. Your vote matters. That's right. Your opinion matters. Your Your money matters. Exactly. Everything matters. So if you want to change things, you can change it in the vote. You can change it in the money. You can change it in your way of thinking. But it does matter. That's right. And if we want to stop being killed, we have to address those issues as well. Because we can get laws changed by voting. That's right. We can change the economic system by changing what we distribute our money. So when we understand that, we understand true power. That's right. And to understand that, we have to go back and we have to look at history and what they were not able to do to create the change that you have the ability to do to create change and the responsibility to do to create change. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Um, So we're going to jump right into what this episode was supposed to be about um, because we were asked to name our favorite civil rights um, leaders or people. Um, And as I done research, we were told to name three and I text not dad and I said, (laughs) Three ain't gonna happen. Three ain't gonna cut it. Three ain't gonna happen. So I'll start with one and I'll let you go. Um, I'm gonna start with people I feel are important and then I'll start with, uh, then I'll go with my favorite. Um, But as far as people that are important, I'm gonna start with uh, a woman by the name of Barbara Jordan. Uh, Barbara Jordan was a lawyer and educator who was a congresswoman from 1972 to 1978. She was the first African-American congresswoman to come from the deep South and the first woman ever elected to the Texas Senate in 1966. So for the people who know history, Texas is, we know how, how racist Texas is. 
And we know how important it is to have an African-American, not just an African-American, but a woman to begin to rise to prominence in the deep South. And she was one of the few black students in Boston University Law School program. And she sought to improve the lives of her constituents by helping usher through the state's first law on minimum wage. So she was trying to raise um, minimum wage. She was also worked to create the Texas Fair Employment Practices Commission. So in 1972, her fellow lawmakers voted her as president um, of the state Senate. Jordan became the first African woman to hold this post. Um, she won the election for the U.S. House of Representatives in 1972. So again, why this is important for me, I believe the best way to change things is through infiltration. So having somebody come up um, out of Texas and enter herself into to Congress and the House of Representatives um, from the Deep South and to begin to change things from the inside out is very important. And for a black woman to do that during the, the time where racism was at uh, a high in the South, monumental. Oh, absolutely. Th this is this is a fun segment because obviously we can name hundreds. There are a lot of of people that play major roles, not minor roles, mm -hmm. major roles in the civil rights movement from, as we discussed, from the late 1800s up until present day. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to go. I'm going to take a different approach. OK, uh, you probably see it in red on my screen. Joe Lewis, the brown bomb, the brown <laughs> and, and I know a lot of people say, what does Joe Lewis have to do with civil rights? I'm about to tell you. So during World War Two, um, Germany um, was considered a superpower, if you will, during that time. Um, so in the 30s, you have this black boxer who is going to now take over for another black boxer by the name of Jack Johnson. Big Jack Johnson. And Jack Johnson had his own issues. Of course, one of the biggest ones was he was married to a white woman mm -hmm. and he always dated white women, which, of course, we know how well that went in the 30s. Right. So Joe Lewis came, comes on the scene, the Brown Bomber, and they basically patent him for everything that Jack Johnson was not. Mm -hmm. They didn't want him to date white women or be take pictures with white women. Don't drink, be clean and fight. Mm -hmm. And he was tasked with fighting Max Schmeling who was a German mm -hmm. who who actually beat Joe Lewis the first time in the United States, in Yankee Stadium. And I'm a Yankee fan, so you know how that hurts. Very similar to Rocky. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he had to go to Germany and fight Max Schmeling. And he had the pressure of not only black America, but the United States. Yeah. All of a sudden, white America was for a black man. Mm-hmm. To go to Germany and beat this Max Schmeling mm -hmm. for the United States. This is if we lose this fight, we lose the war. Germany is the superpower and the United States is not. Mm -hmm. And Joe Lewis had that weight on his shoulders and he had to go in there and show and prove. And he did. Um, he defeated him, came home. And guess what? And we all know Jay-Z's song still in work. That's, that's what it boiled mm -hmm. down to. Yep. So he wins the fight, comes back. Black America loves him. White America, not so much. Same same thing. Joe Lewis, same, same thing. Mm -hmm. Nothing changed. Uh, but it was pivotal because he was able to take that pressure 
go over, win, and show that black people can be successful in other countries. Yeah. We talked about how with civil rights, the one area that we thought Malcolm X was spot on was getting the nation, the country, the other countries, the United Nations involved in human rights. Mm -hmm. This showcased how blacks were treated in America when he went, when Joe Lewis went to Germany. Absolutely. So that was huge. Also, little known black history fact. Okay. Uh, he helped integrate the game of golf. A lot of people don't know that. 1952. He broke the sports color barrier in America by appearing under sponsor exemption in a PGA event. Hmm. A lot of people don't know that about Joe Lewis. Huge. So without that, you're getting no Tiger Woods. Okay. So. Um, my second one is Diane Nash. And I'm using Diane Nash because, um, again, I told you I was going to correlate a story with the Freedom Riders. Um, there was the, the first Freedom Riders, um, a bus, two buses left um, for uh, Alabama. Um and the bus was met in Alabama by local people. And they ended up flattening the tires um, and throwing um, fire into the bus. And the people had to get off the bus. And they were beaten badly um, to the point where they would end up, they were, they ended up uh, were taken away and they got on a plane in New Orleans. They got on a plane to go back to um New Orleans, I believe it was. And when they got on the plane, um, they were headed back. And when the attorney general got home, uh, he made a phone call and said, you know, they're on their way back and this is probably over with. Uh, the next morning, he received a call and said, there's another bus hitting out of uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And he said, what? After what just happened? So he called a lady that was the leader um, by the name of Diane Nash. And Diane Nash was a college student. Um, and he told her, look, what happened with the last bus? How badly they were beaten? He said, if you go in there, they're probably going to kill you. And she she held the phone for a minute and she told him, she said, um, we expect that. And she said, we've already signed our wheels and we're hit. We're leaving this morning. And for somebody Again, most of these were seniors in college. They were missing their final exams to the point where they weren't going to graduate. And they thought that they expected to be killed by going and integrating the South, uh, by sitting in in these places. And I thought that was just a, a, a amazing story after you've seen what would consider be failure by the first group that goes in. And the very next day, the same, the more college students said, we're going in right after that. And we expect to be killed and we signed our wills because we don't expect to come back. Um, you're talking about a lot of heart. You're talking about passion. Um, and you're talking about people who weren't, were not going to give up. And, and I'm, a, I'm a giving her that credit for, for that phone conversation and what she um, endured. Um, she was a frontline member of the Freedom Riders, a group activist that went from state to state uh, protesting segregation. Nash and her fellow riders regularly put themselves at risk, facing angry mobs of locals in each town they staged their protest. 
to the point where she was thrown in jail and she actually wanted to stay in jail because she was pregnant at the time. And she kind of wanted to protect herself by saying, if I'm in here, I can't be out there getting beat while I'm pregnant That's because right. if I'm out there, I'm not going to stop what I'm doing because I'm That's pregnant. Right. Um, huge sacrifice and risk made by Diane Nash. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, my next one is going to be a bit of a surprise. Uh, we often talk about sacrifices that Black America made. Um, we also talk about uh, one time when Malcolm X was asked by the white student, uh, me being a white American, what can I do to help you for your cause? And initially he said nothing. Mm -hmm. And then later on, he said he regretted that. And if he had a chance, he would tell her what he would like for her to do is go back into her own community and stand up for black, mm -hmm. for black people um, with her family, with their coworkers, her friends um, to shed a different light of how black people really are versus what they may perceive. Mm -hmm. So my choice, uh, my second one will be Eleanor Roosevelt. And uh, I know a lot of people going, who? Who is Eleanor Roosevelt? Well, her husband was Franklin D. Roosevelt. Yeah. And president of the United States. FDR. And exactly. And what Eleanor Roosevelt did is monumental in so many ways. Uh, she went against her husband in a lot of situations. And she spoke out, she started speaking out about women's rights during the women's suffrage. Mm -hmm. And she was very, very influential in that movement. And then she moved on over to civil rights, willingly. This wasn't a political agenda. Mm -hmm. This happened long before Franklin D. Roosevelt became president. It just gave her a larger platform once he did become president to where she was, she would openly go against him mm -hmm. in those situations. Almost to the point where, as we know, in most households, uh, happy wife, happy, happy life. life. Yeah. And a lot of times her influences ended up causing being influential in the president's decisions and how we approach civil rights during that time. Mm -hmm. um, but she also worked with making sure that blacks were not discriminated in the military which is huge because without our influence, blacks would not have been able to participate in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. uh, so she created an avenue for blacks to be able to serve in the military and even Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah. So she was very impactful. She actually created the funding for their training facility. Right. So these are things that we often talk about that in order to have success, for black America, you got to have some 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 white people that agree with you and understand that this is something that is just wrong. Mm -hmm. And I stand with you guys. Mm -hmm. And we're not saying that that legitimizes. it. So let's let's make that clear. I'm not saying that our cause is only legitimized when we have white Americans stand with us. That's not what I'm saying. It's already legitimate. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying in, in order to be successful, in order to have that power that change, you have to have other people side with you. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we had Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, sincere people. Sincere people Absolutely. that side with you. Um, next one I'm going to go with, and I'm going to correlate two people into one because they were equally um, prominent. Um, everybody knows Thurgood Marshall, but we have to talk about Charles Houston before we talk That's about right. Thurgood Marshall. Um, so Charles Houston is one of the ones that trained Thurgood Marshall 
Um, he, uh, he was one of the first generation of civil rights lawyers during his years as the dean of Howard University Law School. Houston was appointed in 1935 to be the first special counsel of the NAACP, often referred to as the Moses of, of the civil rights movement. Um, Houston was the architect and chief strategist of the NAACP's legal campaign to end segregation. Again, infiltration is one of the best things to, to have. So when you have a African-American lawyer that becomes a judge, um, it becomes more power to to make change for the, for the people. Um, a few cases that um, Charles Houston won was Mary versus Maryland, 1936, which resulted in the desegregation of the University of Maryland's law school. Um, gangs versus Canada, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ordered the admission of a black student to the law school at the University of Missouri in 1938. Um, when Thurgood Marshall succeeded Houston, Thurgood Marshall won some cases, uh, Smith versus Allwright, which Marshall successfully challenged white primaries, which prevented African-Americans from voting in several southern states. Morgan versus Virginia, as I talked about earlier, the 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 woman, Irene Morgan, who won a case after she was um, uh, segregated against on, on a bus. Uh, Shelley versus Kramer, which ended a practice that barred blacks from purchasing homes in white neighborhoods. Sweat, Sweet versus Painter, uh, which struck down Texas and Oklahoma laws requiring segregated schools. And then, of course, Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas. Um, so we see from Houston to Thurgood Marshall, who go from lawyers to judges, how they impacted cases. So, again, in order to change law, we have to do more than march and protest. We have to begin to change the, the, the system from within. And Charles Houston and Thurgood Marshall did that. Absolutely. Uh it's hard to follow that. That's, a, that's like coming on stage after James Brown. That, that's hard to do. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, I got a, I got one for you. And this one is personal to me. Uh, and I'll tell you why growing up in Washington, D.C., um, some people like to refer to as the chocolate city, if you will. Chocolate city. But there's there's things that are that are so unique about Washington, D.C. that you have to not only visit. You almost have to live there to really understand how segregated Washington, D.C. truly is, where you have Capitol Hill, where you have the White House and all the things associated with tourism. Mm -hmm. And then you have the hood. Yeah. And you you have that mix because everybody's using the same resources. Um, and it's 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 almost odd when you when you listen to me tell it. Versus when you actually go there and see it for yourself. So my next one is Petey Green. For those that watch the movie, talk to me. Radio uh, mm -hmm. talk show uh, host where he was supposed to be a DJ and he turned his radio presence into a political agenda mm -hmm. to where he talked about some of the injustices uh, that happened to uh, black people. And he used language that at the time the FCC probably would have cut him off. Yeah. Um, but he had that window of opportunity we talked about that he was able to do it for a short period of time and be influential, not just in Washington, D.C., but throughout the country. And one of his memorable performances came after Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, James Brown was supposed to be performing 
Um, and I believe at the garden, I think it's Madison. I think it's the garden in Massachusetts. I think I can't remember where, but Petey Green was going to be the host. Mm-hmm. And um, he showed up late drunk mm-hmm. and he quieted the crowd because a lot of people thought that this shouldn't happen. James Brown wanted it to happen. And Petey Green was going to make sure it happened. Mm-hmm. Black America needed that mm-hmm. at that moment. And he went out on stage and did what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Brown is the second one that goes along with that because he did the same thing. For people that don't know, James Brown is one of my favorite entertainers. And we're talking about the entertainer James Brown, not the person. Yeah, The entertainer James Brown, um, where I watched him go on to, I think it was the Merv Griffin show. And do uh, I'm black and I'm proud amongst a a stage full of uh, white Americans sitting down listening and knew the words to his song. I'm black and I'm proud. proud. I'll be honest with you. Watching that for the first time made me be proud Proud to be be black. black. Yeah. And we are back. I'm going to jump right back in. I'm going to go to my next person going back to 1829 to the African-American abolitionist. Um, by the name of David Walker. Um, David Walker was was influential because he created a a pamphlet um, talking about the ending of slavery and its discriminatory ways. And the reason why I picked David Walker through this pamphlet is because he attacked two things when it came to this pamphlet. He attacked what well, he used it um, for his own to get his point across: the Bible, Constitution. He used those two things to make his point on why slavery was wrong. And I believe that when you begin to when you begin to look at the principles of a lot of racism in America, most of those people go to church. Most of those people consider what they call the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence as their as their 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 strongest documents that they love so much. But when you look at those documents, when you look at the the Bible, it talks about equality. It talks about um, the true justice. It talks about um, what is supposed to be happening in America. But, of course, the Bible was used in an attainted way. And the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, whatever one you want to go to, wasn't meant for, for black people. So when you, if you want to talk about the true words and what it's talking about, David Walker pointed out that if you really mean what you say, in those in these documents and in, in these letters on in the Bible, then there should be no reason why slavery still exists and there should be no reason why racism and discrimination still exists. Um, so David Walker, by using their books against them, their documents against them, I thought was huge. And he would do he would sew these pamphlets into into shirts and send them down into the into the South so people can get them without people taking it away from them because there were southern states that would not allow this pamphlet, that's actually why towards the end of slavery, they really um, cramped down on not allowing people to read and write because they didn't want them to read stuff like this that's pamphlet right. um, that, that David Walker gave out. Also, it's important to know that David Walker was, when you think about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, how their little rival kind of went on. This there was a Malcolm and Martin before Malcolm and Martin by the name of Frederick Douglass and David Walker. Okay. Frederick Douglass wanted to be the, the peaceful guy. And David Walker was like, nah, if they hit us, we need to hit back. Right. And so when you go back into the abolitionist movement, they were dealing with the same things that the civil rights movement was dealing with in the 50s and the 60s. 
Um, but I thought David Walker's um, uh, approach was, was monumental. Oh, absolutely. David Walker's approach was mon monumental in, a, in another aspect, because when you had when you had slaves that would go to states that did not have slavery, mm -hmm. They would go to those when they were going through those states or going to those states with the slave uh, slave owners, they would break free and then file a suit against the court yeah. for their freedom. Yeah. And in those cases where the slaves won, they used the approach that Walker mm -hmm. designed, which is. He used religious beliefs. They used the Bible yes. to say this is unjust. Exactly, and because that's what they used. They didn't use the law. Mm -hmm. They used scripture to mm -hmm. say this is not right. Because they used scripture to say it is right. That, absolutely, so, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, he was huge in that. Um, I'm, I'm gonna stick with that 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 same same concept. Samuel Cotton. and Samuel Cotton mm -hmm. was not huge in the civil rights move movement in the United States. He was huge in the civil rights movement in the Sudan. Mm -hmm. We often talk about going back. Yeah. We often talk about black history and going back. And in this situation is what he did was he found out that there was still slavery going on in the Sudan. Yeah. And he went mm -hmm. and said, this is not right. And he took the Malcolm X approach mm -hmm. by getting United Nations involved. And once the United Nations got involved, they were able to go in and create coalitions to put an end to slavery in the, in the Sudan. Mm -hmm. um, huge for the fact that he thought outside of the United States. And I know a lot of people would think, well, why wouldn't he do something in the United States? Well, to each his own. Mm -hmm. He chose to make his impact in the Sudan. And it was a very noted impact that he made. Mm -hmm. So mine is Samuel Cotton. Uh, so now I'm gonna get into my favorites. Um, they may not be for everybody, but they're they're my favorites when it comes to talking about civil rights. And for the people who say, "Well, y'all haven't talked about Dr. King or Rosa Parks," y'all already know about them. So I I, I didn't I we I purposely didn't put them into right. my favorites due to the fact that you are most people already know about them. Okay, but my favorite um, would be James Baldwin. Um, who wrote several essays and and, and uh, novels that pertain to the civil rights movement? Um, you're talking about a person who was uh, Malcolm X considered him the poet of the revolution. That's right. Um, and not he wasn't just a a great writer; he became a great speaker um, as well, which I'll get into. But what what Baldwin did was. They didn't need Baldwin to march and protest. They didn't need Baldwin to, you know, do it to organize. They needed Baldwin to do what he did best, which was right. That's right. And that's exactly what he did. He, he wrote great novels to where you you felt what he was saying. You you were able to put yourself in African American shoes by the things that he would would say in his in his stories. And the stories were so real and captivating that the audience um, got a true grasp of what it felt like to be black in America. Um, one of his one of his best books was um, Nobody Knows My Name in 1961, which talked about the black and white relations in the United States. And I'm going to give a couple of quotes. For number one, he challenged racism in his book. 
um, one of the quotes that he says in this book is Europeans never had the, the intention of raising Africans to the Western level of sharing with them the instruments of physical, political and economic power. It was precisely their intention, their necessity to keep the people they ruled in the state of culture, anarchy that is simply in a barbaric state. But he not only challenged racism, he challenged supporters of the civil rights movement that may have been white. And he said this. Any real change implies the breakup of the world as one has always known it. The loss of all that gave one an identity, the end of safety. And what he meant by this is you can support civil rights and black people, Mm -hmm. but are you willing to give up your privilege? Are you willing to give up the things that oppress black people? Are you willing to give up some jobs? Are you willing to give up some economic um, capital to to help black people. If the answer is no, then you're no greater than the first than the, than the racist people. You can support them, but are you willing to give up what makes you in the position that you're in? The third thing he did is he challenged black people, and he says in this book he says many have given up. They stay home and they watch the TV screen, living on their earnings of their parents, their cousins, their brothers or uncles. And they only leave the house to go to the movies or to the latest to the nearest bar. How are you making it? One may ask running into them along the block or in the bar. Oh, I'm TVing it with the saddest, sweetest, most shameful of smiles. And from a great distance, this distance one is compelled to the respect. Anyone who has traveled so far will not easily be dragged in again into the world. They are further retreats, of course, than the TV screen or the bar. There are those who are simply sitting on the stoops, stone, animated for a moment only. And by the approach of someone who may lend them the money for, for a fix, or by the approach of someone whom they can purchase it from, true ones are the way to prison or just coming out. So you're talking about somebody that says, you, it is, on, it is your responsibility to not just sit in front of the TV, smoke weed all day, drink all day, To live off the government, it is your duty to create change within yourself. And James Baldwin, I mean, when you read James Baldwin, again, you have no choice but to put yourself in his shoes. And one of the um, some of the one of the great things that I love when he spoke is he had a debate. You can go to YouTube and watch his debate versus uh, William Buckley and a few quotes from. Uh, that he said in that debate was the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. He says, I picked the cotton. I carried it to the market and I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing. And this dude personalized black America and put it in white America's backyard through books not only in america but you're talking about europe you're talking about across the world that began to put themselves in african-american shoes um by him creating these stories and novels from the black perspective a lot what this podcast is on giving their perspective from the african um james baldwin was doing this and i also like to throw in that james baldwin understood change so he started out as a civil rights movement supporting dr king 
And then he moved on to support Malcolm X more because he realized that Malcolm X approach might have been better. That's right. And then he moved on to support the Black Panther Party because he said maybe they have the right idea for the for this right. situation now. So a lot of people didn't like that, but he understood to the youth um, as he spoke. He said he told the youth at uh, I think it was Howard University. He said it's the responsibility of the Negro writer to excavate the real history of this country to tell us what really happened to get us to where we are now. And we must tell the truth so no one can longer bear it. And he told them, I'm going to always tell the truth for you. James Baldwin is my pick, Powerful. my number one pick. And we are back. All right, Pops, I'll let you go ahead. All right, I'm a, I got my next one. One of your favorites is um, Ella Baker. Um. A lot of people, including myself, agree that without Ella Baker, there would be no civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, and and she actually uh, touched on things that we've talked about, like our previous episode, episode where we talk about roots and the theory and the concept of how traditions are passed down, how knowledge of uh, your your ancestors are passed down through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And obviously, um, growing up. Uh, Ella Baker listened to her grandmother's firsthand stories about slave revolts, uh, including the time her grandmother was whipped for refusing to marry a man her slave master chose. Um, these stories sparked her passion for social social justice and equality, which is another point that you made earlier is that when you start educating yourself, you start learning, um, it fused that passion within you. Um, and with that comes the desire to take on responsibilities um, to apply the things that you've learned. And I think Ella uh, Baker was an epitome of that. Um, she, done a, a, she did a lot of things um, supporting missions to develop black economic power through collective planning. Um, she taught courses in consumer education and labor history. Uh, she helped develop the Negro History Club um, at the Harlem Library in New York, mm -hmm. um, as I said, which I visited before. Um, she was also influential in the terms of how she thought civil rights movements or protests or campaigns, if you will, could be successful. She was very critical of professionalized, charismatic leadership like we saw with Martin Luther King. Now, of course, she was way proud of Martin Luther King, so she wasn't talking about him specifically. But she had a saying. Um, she said, you didn't see me on television. You didn't see news stories about me. The kind of role that I tried to play was to pick up the pieces or put together pieces out of which I hoped organization might come. My theory is strong people don't need strong leaders. Mm -hmm. And that kind of answered the question that uh, I mentioned earlier in this podcast that who came after Martin Luther King was assassinated? Who came after Malcolm X was assassinated? Who came after Mega Evers was assassinated? Mm -hmm. Ella Baker believed that you did not have to have that one strong leader to have strong people. And you only needed two things to have that. And she mentioned participation and organization. Mm -hmm. When you look at the Black Panther Party, as you 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 mentioned um, they understood that concept. 
They didn't think that they didn't want the leader to be above the organization, which is why you have multiple organizations across the country so that if you kill the leader of one part, Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop the movement. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Ella Baker was one of the authors of that 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 mindset. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to go with a person you just mentioned, which is Mega Evers. If you know me, I got a a hoodie with Malcolm, Martin, and Mega on there. Most people, they like, who is that? They know Malcolm and Martin, but they don't know That's the right. other M, which is Mega Evers. Um, Mega Evers was um, out of Mississippi. He was one of the activists out of Mississippi who um, they began to protest white-owned businesses that would not hire African-Americans. Um, he also was influential in um, the... Uh, desegregating Ole Miss, That's Ole right. Miss University. But one of the key things that he did that I loved, which um, which is we still see today, is he investigated Emmett Till's murder. That's right. He went around to witnesses, went to the family, and began to come up with his own um, ideas of what happened and to um, bring this into justice. And, of course, um, the people he talked to, the witnesses, they agreed to testify um, and of course, the, the conviction came out not guilty. But this is something that we've seen um, today where African-Americans are coming forward or they begin to look at open and closed shut cases as not being that. So uh, Mega Evers was uh, influential. Um, it got him killed, actually. Um, it did. It, it got him killed for, you know, Mississippi. You know, they take they that's one of the most racist places you can go in America, especially in the deep south. And Mega Evers was operating out of Mississippi. Um, but when you talk about somebody in a short span of time that was that became so prominent. Um, and of course, you don't hear about him is because um, he he was killed um, early on before he, he got that opportunity to to begin on begin on a national level. But um, you're talking about somebody that was influential in the civil rights movement um, because of his death. That's right. Um, if you look at what his death sparked for for the the civil rights movement, um, it made a lot of black people come out and start talking. Um, if you watch the movie The Help, uh, where um, they they talk about the African American women that were nannies um, after Mega Evers is killed, a lot of nannies came out and started to say, "We know we want to tell our story," because they started to realize that. People are getting killed over things and it's going to take other African-Americans to step up. So when you you talk about that honor that comes that if one gets killed, another person steps up. This is not not one leader. Um, A few other people, um, Nanny Burroughs, she was denied a a teaching job in Washington, D.C. for being too dark. So what she did was she created a national training school for women and girls which was a trade school for black high school and college age girls in 1909. And after her death in 1961, the school, which integrated themes of racial pride and community activism into curriculums in DC. So you're talking about somebody that was influential in the school system for civil rights. And the last person would be Ida B. Wells, who did a lot of writing as well, uh, especially about the lynchings that was happening. Um, They got to the point where her writings were making people so mad that they stormed the newspaper looking for and tore up all her stuff. And they said that she was not allowed to come to to, Mich- to Memphis or Nashville 
ever again. That's right. And when she began to go out and um, get people's accounts on certain lynchings to try to bring those people that lynched them to justice. So um, you're talking about a lot of writers in the civil rights movement that were, um, they may not have been out there protesting and marching, but they were influential in, in moving the needle. Um, so when we talk about the civil rights movement, we're not just talking about the 50s and 60s. When you talk about the civil rights movement, you have to go back to the to the um, abolitionists. And then you have to still look at today. You know, they, they may not be NAACP. They may not be uh, Black Lives Matter. But this this podcast is a part of the civil rights movement. Um, right. What you post on Facebook is part of the civil rights movement. What you do in your everyday life is a part of the civil rights movement. When you... Um, Say, well, that ain't fair at, at your job. You're part of the civil rights movement. And it's about what actions are you taking to stop certain discriminations and, and certain inequalities from happening um, here in America. So do your due diligence. Continue to speak out. Continue to stand up. Continue to uh, fight for what you believe in because people die behind it. Um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We love you. Peace and blessings to you.